Having to wake up every morning for the Fajr prayers. Having to pray five times a day and performing the five mandatory salah. Enduring the difficulty and the hardship of Siyam during the long days of summer. The obligation of Hajj. Having to pay Zakat and Khums. And more importantly the possibility of establishing a family through marriage. And the responsibilities of a home are all the responsibilities mandated on a nine-year-old female according to the popular opinion of our ulama and mujtahids. And of course, one of the, ma- one of the most mind-occupying questions that we are oftenly asked in the Western countries is that Sayyidna, my daughter is only nine years old. She's still a child. And I find it extremely difficult for her to wake up every morning for Fajr. To make sure that she prays her five daily prayers. I find it enduring for her to practice the full definition of hijab. To observe siyam during the long days of summer. And tonight, we ask the following question. Is it that when we have a fatwa, a verdict from a scholar, after his research, after his analysis, that the age of taklif or obligation for a Muslim woman is nine. The rest of the ulama, the rest of the mujtahideen, the rest of the maraji', they drop their pens, they close their books, and they say this research is now done and completed. We no longer have to indulge and look into the specific fatwa or the specific theory or the specific hukm. And another very important question. When scholars and mujtahideen or fuqaha come across a popular opinion, also known in the hawzah as al-qawl al-mashhur, when they come across a popular opinion amongst the ulama, Do they say because this opinion is a popular opinion, the majority of our ulama have given fatwa in in accordance to this specific verdict, then we no longer have to trouble ourselves. And they no longer go and look at the ayat or the ahadith and the rest of the sources to derive their own verdict or derive their own fatwas or derive their own theories. Those are two fundamental and important questions. And of course, people have the right to ask such questions. Why? Because an average person sitting in Africa 
an average person sitting in India, an average person sitting in Canada, Europe, the United States, they have no clue of what's going on in the Hawza. What is the process of questioning theories? What is the process of perfecting ideas? What is the process of deriving an Islamic verdict? Therefore, they have the right to ask. And indeed, it is the job of the seminarians. It is the job of the ulama. It is the job of the fuqaha to bring forth answers and to discuss such topics. Discuss such, discuss such theories. But you may ask, but Sayyid, how come such topics are never discussed? Or let's put it this way, why is it that it is less likely for such topics to be addressed from the member of Imam Hussein through the ulama, through speakers, lecturers, experts, Again, for the following two reasons. Number one, it's because generally such topics are considered taboos in our communities. People consider such notions as norms. All my life I've heard that the age of puberty for women in Islam is nine. Now somebody takes the pulpit, somebody takes the member, and wants to discuss this issue. And some people are intolerant of such ideas. Some people happen to be intolerant of the discussion of change. So what do they do? They embark on a campaign to destroy that individual. And people, you know, they want to live a peaceful life. Nobody's looking for trouble. Another reason is because people, those listening, usually take from a lecture, whether it's an academic one, a seminarian one, that which they desire. For example, if they don't like this person, or they don't like his idea, Today it's very easy, we have copy-paste. They copy some segments from here, some segments from here, some segments from here, put it together, paste on the internet. And the result is, look at this person, he's a fasiq. And they start a campaign to destroy him and destroy his image. A campaign of defamation of character. Another group, no, they like the ideas. So what do they do? They copy and paste that which they like. And again, that also may be incorrect. For example, so far if you're listening to this lecture, and you're going to stop listening at this moment, they ask you, what did Jawad Qazwini say today? Now we've only listened for a few minutes. He said the age of puberty for women is not nine. Did I say that? No. Some people take that which they like and they run with it. They don't pay attention. Maybe he's here for the full hour, for the full discussion, but as soon as he hears one sentence that he likes, this is it. And he draws his own conclusions from it. Of course, I am not here to tell you a verdict or a fatwa, only a mujtahid, listen to me. Only a mujtahid has the ability to give such verdicts. And if a mujtahid came and gave such a verdict, such a fatwa, most likely it's only enough and sufficient for him. It will suffice for his practices. Why? Because an average mukallaf, an average person who's in a state of obligation, has three options. Number one, 
for himself to become a mujtahid. So he becomes a mujtahid and he takes his own lead in fiqh. Number two, he does ihtiyat, precaution. So he sees four fatwas, five fatwas in regards to one specific act of worship, one specific taqlid, one specific fatwa, and he takes the hardest one. Third is that he follows a mujtahid, but any mujtahid? No. A mujtahid that is a'lam, the most learned, and that is a'dal, the most just of our fuqaha. But does that mean just because we cannot follow, just because it's not a fatwa, we should not discuss it? We should not speak of it? No, absolutely not. Brothers and sisters, we have the ability to illuminate the minds and the hearts of our congregations and our communities through the universal pulpit of Imam Hussein alayhi salatu wasalam, to allow them to think freely, question freely. And that should be the main purpose and the main task of the member of Imam Hussein. Today, in many of our communities, people cannot think. And if they think, their thought process is limited. There's boundaries around our thought process and the way we think. Why? Because when he was born and until today, every time he wants to ask a religious question, we tell him, no, you don't have the right to ask this one. He wants to think of a specific religious matter. This one is a red line. Don't go near it. Don't discuss it. Don't question it. Don't talk about it. He wants to know why this practice is wajib. Why is it that I cannot do this? Why is it that I must do this? And the response is because Allah said so. How dare you to ask? And what is the result? The result is that they can never think outside the box. Even if they think, they're always within the box. Today you find that the greatest of innovations, the greatest of informations, the greatest of inventions are imported from Western countries into the Muslim countries. The greatest of ideas, inventions, whether it's a car or even a small microwave or the TV that we watch from and the laptop that we use to the most complex systems and our banks and hospitals, they're imported from the West to the Muslim countries. Why? Because we were never allowed and given a chance to think outside the box and have an innovative mind. Therefore, one of the jobs of the member of Imam Hussein is to create an innovative mind, a thoughtful mind, an aware mind, a bright mind within our communities. That's one. Number two, another problem that we have is that many Muslim countries stand against freedom of expression. Some people have theories, some people have thoughts, some people have ideas, some people have questions. If they write it, it cannot be published. If they write it and it's published, sometimes they're imprisoned. Why? Because he expressed himself through a book. Because he expressed himself through an article. And what does that do? That is the greatest roadblock. When it comes to the growth of ilm. When it comes to the growth of knowledge. Because if you don't let people speak, if you don't let people express themselves, if you don't let people write, the process of ilm and knowledge will stop. 
And that is the result, that is why you find the top 500 universities in the world, not even 1% of them is in the Arab countries. <laughs> top 500 schools and universities of the world, not even 1% of them reside in the Arab countries. And the majority of them are Muslim. And Islam is a religion that focuses and emphasizes on the importance of knowledge and ilm. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam says if a man leaves his home or a woman seeking knowledge until he returns the malaika will seek forgiveness for him. And if he were to die he would die as a martyr. In fact, Rasulullah says, Midadul ulama, the pen of scholars, thinkers, theologians, Midadul ulama is greater than what? Dima'ul shuhada, the blood of martyrs. A religion that has emphasized heavily on knowledge. Today we find it difficult sometimes for ideas to thrive, for ideas to flourish within our communities. And when we discuss such topics, brothers and sisters, we demonstrate the power within the school of Ahl al-Bayt. And we reaffirm that the madhab of Al-Muhammad and the fiqh of Al-Muhammad remains alive. And it's a school, and it's a madhab based on intellectual process. Asking questions, receiving reasonable answers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't want confused mu'mineen. A person who's confused why he prays. He's confused why he's observing Siyam. She's confused why she wears hijab. He's confused why is it that I must go to Hajj? Huh? Allah says the very first change within your life after Iman is what? Allah waliyu ladina amanu yukhrijahum min al-dhulumati ila nur the very first change is that you escape darkness, confusion, ignorance, and to what? Light, certainty, knowledge, awareness. Therefore, let us discuss this topic in the following manner. Number one, what is the philosophy of having an entire chapter within the Holy Quran known as Surah An-Nisa, chapter four of the Quran. Number two, Sabab Nuzul, the reason behind the dissension of the sixth ayah from the fourth chapter, the one that I began my topic with. Number three, we'll look at a correlation between the word hatta, between the statement hatta ida balagun nikah, the age of marriage, and fa'in anastum minhum rushda, and mental maturity. What is the correlation between those two statements? The age of marriage. And the age of mental maturity or sound judgment. Number four, we will look at the ahadith that speak of the age of taklif or obligation for a woman at the age nine years old. Number five, we will look at ahadith that speak of the age of obligation and taklif being 13 for both men and women. Number six, we will examine whether there is an ijma' and a consensus among scholars 
that the age of taklif and obligation is nine for a female in their fiqh of Al Muhammad or not. And number seven, how do we prepare our children for their religious obligations? <coughs> what is the philosophy behind having an entire chapter within the Holy Quran? Chapter four, Surah An-Nisa. Why don't we have a chapter in the Quran known as Surah Al-Rijal? It's because Islam was born in an era and a time and a place where the air that people breathed was against women. They weren't just second class citizens. They weren't even considered citizens of society. They were looked at as servants. Means for the pleasure and the comfort of men. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to change that paradigm. Allah wants to change the pagan Arabs. Allah wants to change the mentality in the Arabian Peninsula and around the world. So Allah sends down an entire chapter reveals an entire surah and he entitles, entitles it An-Nisa, speaking of their significance in society, meaning that men and women are equal in front of Allah and in society. Therefore, they must be treated equal. And throughout the Holy Quran, and almost every chapter of the Holy Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings inspiring stories for the women of Arabia. For a Muslim woman in general for centuries to come and until the end of time to inspire them. To tell them of their value and their worth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the example of Imra'at Fir'aun, the wife of Fir'aun who was a goddess, people worshipped her. Her husband used to say, Ana rabbukum al-a'la. I am the greatest Lord to be worshipped. She had servants, she had slaves, she had mansions, she had everything that a woman can wish for. But one thing was missing. What? Allah subhanahu. If Allah is missing brothers and sisters, the heart is not at ease. Yes. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to tell me and you that you may have many servants. You, have, you may have all the gold and the silver that one man or woman can desire. You may drive the most beautiful cars. You may have the greatest bank account. You may be the most popular person. You may be a president or a prime minister. But that is never enough. When we have one million, we want two million. When we have five million, we want ten million. When we have ten million, we want fifty million. When we rule for four years, we, another, we want another four years. When the eight years are over, we want another eight years. When we become popular, we want more popularity. The heart is never at ease. Except once. One remedy. And this is the message of Imam Hussein. This is the message of Ashura. Through all the calamities that he saw and he witnessed, his heart was at ease. What does he say? He says, قَدْ هَوَّنَ مَا نَزَلَ بِي it brings ease to me that Allah is there. Allah is a witness. Allah is watching. So the wife of Pharaoh, she found the religion of Musa and Harun. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of her troubles and calamities that fell onto her by her husband. They say that he cut her, her body with a knife and he threw her in a bucket of salt until she died. And Allah says, ضَرَبَ اللَّهُ مَثَلًا لِلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِمْرَأَةَ فِرْعَوْنِ إِذْ قَالَتْ رَبِّ بْنِ لِي عِنْدَكَ بَيْتًا فِي الْجَنَّةِ 
ونجني من فرعون وعمله ونجني من القوم الظالمين الله gives this story within the Quran to inspire women Allah gives the story of Maryam and the difficulties that she faced to inspire women Allah gives the story of a mother the mother who saw hardship but yet she was strong and steadfast the mother of Musa ibn Imran so what is the philosophy behind having an entire chapter named Surah An-Nisa it is to change our paradigms of the way we observe women and let me tell you something until today until this very day Muslim women still suffer how number one by our cultural and interpretations of Islam our culture dictates over the faith our culture dictates over religion and we allow that to dictate our families dictate our marriages dictate our communities number two it's the stereotypes that they're brought forth against Islam that hijab is meant to limit women that the job of a woman that is Muslim is only in the kitchen and to have children and to wash dishes she cannot go to school she cannot learn she cannot drive she cannot travel she cannot speak she cannot breathe all those stereotypes are there and we have to strive when we read Surah An-Nisa to bring back the spirit of Surah An-Nisa to bring back within us the philosophy of Surah An-Nisa to bring back the motive in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala entitled the entire chapter of the fourth chapter of the Quran and named it Surah An-Nisa and the change must begin here and in every masjid and in every Husayniyyah that adheres to the Quran and the teachings of the Ahl al-Bayt I go to certain communities and I find that everything is ran by the men an extremely chauvinistic community from the leadership to the president to the vice president to the secretary to the treasurer to the ones that vote to the ones that bring a speaker to the ones that say don't bring him to the ones that make decisions of events to the ones that even cook to the ones that clean to the why why is it that we've neglected the women in our communities and sometimes when you say this, they say, okay, Sayyidina, from tomorrow we'll give them the, the kitchen. No. You give them a position from the very top of the leadership and every volunteering position in every community. And that is how a community will prosper. That is how a community will change. Or else, let me be honest with you. We say, Wallahi, Billahi, Tallahi, Islam says men and women are equal. We write that on the internet. We say it in our lectures. We say it in universities. When we go and meet outsiders, people outside those walls, whether it's a church, whether it's a university, whether it's a diplomat, whether it's a politician. Then they say, okay, we want to come and visit your community. Okay, please come. And when they come, what do they see? Equality? No. They don't see equality. The big hall, the nice one, or the speaker sitting inside it is allocated to whom? To whom? The men. Who gets to spend time with the ulama? The men. Who gets to invite them and have a say in who comes and who goes? The men. 
Who coordinates the programs? The men. Who gives the lectures? The men. Brothers, sisters, you have brilliant intellectual leaders within the females of your community. Bring them to the top. Show people outside those walls that we have such leaders within our community. And hijab has not created limits for them and their progress of ilm. And their progress to seek knowledge and conquer the highest mountains of intellectual achievements. Let's make sure that they understand Hijab is there to bring respect, dignity, and honor to women and not limit them. Let's make sure that they understand Islam is truly a religion that appreciates equality. And you know, sometimes when we speak of equality, we say, Wallahi, there is equality. So some people think that the same job that a man should have, the same way a man speaks, the, way, the same lifestyle that a man has, a woman must also have, that's called equality. No, no, no. This is not what I mean. When we look at the responsibilities, for example, within a family of both the men and women, we find that the greatest responsibility in giving ethics, morality, emotions, Love falls on the burden of the mothers. Why? Or else Allah could have said one time the man should get pregnant, the second time his wife. So if they have two children, one time the man gets pregnant. The second time the woman gets pregnant. Allah says, no, keep this child in your room for nine months. Love him before he is even born. He'll know you the moment that life starts for, for him and he opens his eyes in the eyes of his mother. And the attachment and the love begins with the mother. And that is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam says, Al-Jannatu tahta aqdamil Ummahat. Heaven, the mercy of Allah, the compassion of Allah, the forgiveness of Allah, paradise is underneath the feet of the mothers. Yes, they have a responsibility. But this also doesn't mean, Wallah, Alhamdulillah, Sayyidina, I have a good wife. She teaches my children. She spends time with them. She teaches them salah. She teaches them the Quran. So what's your job? Sayyidina, of course, my job is to bring, be the breadwinner to, for the home. So I work, I work 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, I'm not home. Because I've kept the home in secure hands, good, good for you. May Allah bless you, may Allah bless your home. But you also are responsible. That is why you find single children from single parents. Children from broken homes that either lack the existence of a mother or a father always have emotional troubles. They live, in a, they live a life of instability. Why? Because they lack the fatherly figure in their lives. The father was not there to be the exemplary figure for them, to teach them, to guide them. Let me say this sentence and move on. Surah An-Nisa was revealed to honor the position of woman. It's our culture and bad habits that does not portray that to the public. Let me say it again so we understand. Allah revealed Surah An-Nisa to bring honor and dignity to women. It is our culture and habits that does not portray that to the public, to the outside world. Number two, let's take a look at the ayah and see the correlation between the two statements I just introduced to you. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, yatama, And test the orphans. Why was this verse revealed? This verse was revealed because some kids, their fathers would pass away while they were children. Maybe one, two, three, five years old. And of course, they also inherit from their fathers. Maybe they have an uncle, maybe they have a grandfather, maybe they have an elder brother who's waiting to pass the inheritance to them, give them their share of the inheritance. So they came, Ya Rasulullah, when do we give them the inheritance? At what age do we pass the money to them? So Allah says, وَابْتَلُوا الْيَتَامَ Test them. وَابْتَلُوا الْيَتَامَ حَتَّى إِذَا بَلَغُوا النِّكَاحِ Until they reach the age of marriage. Test them. Until they reach the age of marriage. Ya Rasulullah, Ya Quran, Ya Allah. When is the age of marriage? Tell us, Allah says, فَإِنْ آنَسْتُمْ مِنْهُمْ When you feel mental maturity from them. When you feel they have sound judgments. At that time you can pass the money to them. So what is the correlation between those two words? Those two statements. One says, give them their money at the age of their marriage. The other one says, it's the time of rushed, sound judgment, or mental perfection, or mental maturity. Now we ask, is it possible for a nine-year-old to be at the state of mental maturity? Is it possible for a nine-year-old to have sound judgments? They'll be playing on their iPad, some of them with dolls, watching cartoons. Therefore, we look further into the notion. Let's begin with looking into the hadith that discusses the age of taklif, an obligation being at the age nine, at nine years old. But I'll do that after you recite three loud salawats and move forward as much as you can. Come to the member. Sallu ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. الثانية غفر الله لكم الثالثة على حب الإمامين الحسن والحسين بأعلى أصواتكم The hadith is from one of the greatest and famous companions of Imam al-Sadiq by the name of Abdullah ibn Sinan. He says, Qala, Sa'altu Aba Abdullah, Al-Imam al-Sadiq. When is it that a young man is obligated to pray and reaches the age of obligation? Qala, Ida balagha al-ghulamu thalathata ashara sana. كُتِبَتْ لَهُ الْحَسَنَةِ وَكُتِبَتْ عَلَيْهِ السَّيِّئَةِ وَعُوقِبْ وَإِذَا بَلَغَتِ الْجَارِيَةِ تِسْعُ سِنِينَ وَذَلِكَ إِنَّهَا تَحِيضُ لِتِسْعِ سَنَوَاتِ He says, If a young man reaches the age 13, or... 
He goes through the physical puberty. Then it is time for him to begin his religious obligations and everything that he does will be recorded for him. And the halal of haram, he must adhere and observe. Then he says, and it is nine for a female, for that is the beginning and the time of her menstrual cycle. Keep this hadith with you. It's the age of nine, the beginning of his, her menstrual cycle. The second hadith, and of course there are many hadiths, we won't be able to discuss all of them. The second hadith is pretty straightforward. He says, The time of obligation for a woman is nine years of age. This is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Sinan. That indicates the age of taklif, the age of obligation is nine years old for the ladies. Now let's take a look at the second group of ahadith. The hadith, the most important one of them, is known as Muwathaqat Ammar al-Sabati. He says, I asked him the same question. And the Imam, Imam al-Sadiq says, قَالَ إِذَا بَلَغَ الْغُلَامُ ثَلَاثَةَ عَشَرَ سَنَةَ if a young man reaches the age 13, He says, I asked him, When is it that a man is obligated to pray? When is it that he must establish his salah? And he says, إِذَا أَتَى عَلَيْهِ ثَلَاثَةَ عَشَرَ سَنَةَ once he becomes 13 years old. If he were to go through the physical maturity before that, then at the time where he goes through the physical maturity and the signs of physical maturity within his body. Then salah is mandated on him. And everything that he does as written in his records. مِثْلُ ذَلِكَ إِنْ أَتَى عَلَى الْجَارِيَةَ ثَلَاثَةَ عَشَرَ سَنَةَ And similarly for the woman, if she is 13 years old, أَوْ حَاضَتْ قَبْلَ ذَلِكَ But if she begins her menstrual cycle before that, then this is the time of her taklif. وَجَبَ عَلَيْهَا الصَّلَاةِ وَجَرَى عَلَيْهَا الْقَلَمِ then salah becomes wajib unto her. And everything that she does is also recorded. So we have two sets of ahadith. Now we ask, is there a consensus amongst the ulama that the age of taklif for women and ladies is nine? First of all, what is consensus? What is ijma'? Ijma'? is when our scholars agree unanimously onto one specific fatwa. <coughs> and at that moment, scholars cannot go against the ijma'. You may ask me why I tell you this needs its entire lecture and an entire discussion dedicated to why, what is ijma'? What is it that is considered a complete consensus amongst the ulama. What does it mean for us to have a complete consensus? This is a different discussion. But do we have such a consensus? <coughs> Absolutely not. If you look at Shaykh al-Saduq in his book Al-Muqni' If you look at the work of Sayyid al-Murtada, Shaykh al-Tusi, our previous scholars, and our contemporary scholars, for example, as Sayyid al-Mudarrisi, they don't agree that the age of puberty or taklif for a woman is at nine years of age. So what do they say? 
they say exactly that which the hadith of Ammar al-Sabati says. They say up until the age 13, if the man does not go through physical puberty, then at 13 he must begin his taklif. And similarly for a woman, up until the age 13 there is no taklif unless she begins her menstrual cycle. And that's when her taklif begins. Okay. Now with that said, I'll conclude with this. So do we wait until my son becomes 13 years old on his birthday when he becomes 13? I wake him up for Fajr. I say, Muhammad says what? Get up and pray. I don't feel like praying. I'm tired. The hard time, Baba, stand and pray. It's lunchtime. Then I have to do my homework. Then I have guitar lessons. So no time. Maghrib comes. Baba, did you pray? Yeah, yeah, I prayed in my room. You weren't there. You know, some people they say, I hear my parents walking to my room to wake me for Salat al-Fajr. They open their door, they're coming towards my room. So before they come in bed, I say, Allahu Akbar, Bismillah, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. I say, oh Allah, Subhanallah, my son woke up for Salah before me. What a good boy. Why? It's because we did not teach them from a young age the importance of Salah. We did not train them from a young age at the importance of observing Siyam. We did not teach them at a young age that in the end of the year, oh my father, oh my son, oh my daughter, if you've earned some money, if you have some extra money at the age 10, at the age 12, teach them you have to pay the khums of this money. Maybe it's $50, maybe it's $100. Maybe it's $20, so that when your son goes and begins his work and he earns 50000 a year or 70000 a year, then later becomes 100000 a year, he automatically knows I have to pay my homes. So that when your son leaves your residence and he goes to the dorms and studies at the university, he knows that he has to wake up for Salat al-Fajr. He knows that in the time of Dhuhr and Asr, my mom is not there to remind me. My dad is not there to remind me. He stands and he prays. If he finds himself eligible for Hajj, he says, Father, Mother, this year I'm going to go to Hajj. If he finds himself eligible for the rest of the Islamic acts of worship, he performs them. This all comes when we train them at a young age. Not we wait until he's 15 and 16, then we want to teach them about hijab. We want to teach them about salah. We want to teach them about siyam. And brothers and sisters, this is the message of Ashura. Tonight, the eve of Ashura, let us make the heart of our Imam, Al-Imam Al-Husayn, happy by giving more attention to our children, to our families. By teaching them of Islam. Sometimes what do we do? We scare them. We don't teach them. If you don't pray, when you die, a scorpion is going to come and bite you. A snake is going to come in your grave. If you lie, Allah is going to pop your eyes out in the grave. He's going to crush your bones. Why? Allah, Rasulullah says, Allimu awladakum. Teach your children, حب Allah. حب Allah. Teach them to love Allah. وحب رسوله. And to love Rasulullah. وحب أهل بيته وحب القرآن. And teach them to love أهل البيت. And teach them to love the Quran. Don't make Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the greatest of their enemies so that they're always afraid of Allah, they're afraid of Rasulullah, they're afraid of the Qur'an, they're afraid of the Ammah. Don't do that to your children. Teach them the love of Ahlul Bayt. 
And that is the only way. Believe me, if you look at this Ashura and the sacrifice of Imam Hussein and the movement of Imam Hussein and what he and what he did, the only way you can explain it is today is to say they had unconditional love for Allah. Every one of them. They had unconditional love for Allah. Their love for Allah was so great. It had taken over their entire existence that they're willing to walk by their own feet to the sacrifice. And Allah gives this example in the Quran. Ibrahim and his son, Ismail. Ibrahim had the love for Allah. Ibrahim was Khalilullah. But what about his son, Ismail? He says to him, Bunayya inni ara fil manami anni adbahuk, oh my son. Allah has dictated through a dream that I sacrifice you for his sake. His son didn't tell him, oh, what did you eat last night for dinner? What type of dream is this? He says, Ya abata, if'al ma tu'mar, satajiduni insha'allahu min as-sabiri. Oh Allah, oh my father, do that which is mandated unto you. And you shall find me amongst the patient ones, amongst the sabirin. So Allah says, when Ibrahim took Ismail to sacrifice him, Allah says, أَسْلَمَا أَسْلَمَا When they both submitted, when they were both in the state of Islam, when they both gave in, to that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted from them. فَلَمَّا أَسْلَمَا وَتَلَّهُ لِلْجَبِينَ وَنَادَيْنَاهُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ قَدْ صَدَّقْتَ الرُّؤْيَا Ibrahim, you passed the test. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.